I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about the situation in Mariupol and the broader humanitarian situation in Ukraine, we have with us Jake Kurtzer, who is a senior fellow at CSIS. And Jake is the director of our humanitarian agenda. Jake, welcome to Truth of the Matter, and so glad to have you back. Thanks for having me. So, Jake, I want to get right to it and talk about the civilian evacuations happening in Mariupol and the plight of those who are still trapped there. The UN and Red Cross have begun a safe passage operation out of Mariupol. A few busloads of citizens have been evacuated safely out of the city, but apparently several hundred still remain at the steel plant there, stuck. What do you think is going to happen to those who are still there at the plant? I mean, unfortunately, I think it really remains very unclear and probably depends much more on the dynamics of the conflict than on any negotiations carried out by the UN or by the International Committee of the Red Cross. What we've seen so far in this particular conflict is repeated attempts to negotiate safe passage for civilians or for humanitarian goods, medical or food. And those negotiations have more often than not led to either nothing. There have been instances where agreements were reached and then civilians were targeted or attacked even when they were promised safe passage or the dynamics of the conflict shifted enough that the parameters under which the negotiations were carried out in the first place were no longer really present. And so I think we all share a certain amount of anxiety about the fate of the civilians that remain trapped in that factory. Do you know of any timetable on evacuation for those who might be able to be evacuated that remain there? I don't know that there's a specific timetable. And I think, you know, one of the challenges in opining about a situation like this is that these negotiations, there's so much detail and nuance that's happening on the ground with the UN negotiators, with ICRC negotiators, and and with their counterparts. You know, in some militaries, you could have a negotiation at headquarters that gets carried out, you know, the order gets passed down through. But one of the things that relates to the situation from the military side of this conflict is, as many military observers have pointed out, the command and control within the Russian armed forces seems quite poor. And so there doesn't seem to be that opportunity to carry out a negotiation with high-level officials in Moscow or Geneva or somewhere else that you would then have confidence would manifest in an agreement being held to in a situation like Mariupol or, or at the specific factory. So, you know, I think what you'll see is will more likely look like what we've seen so far, where there's a negotiation about a large group of people, in this case, the upwards of thousand civilians stuck in a factory. And piecemeal, you'll see moments where a couple hundred can get out or 20 people can get out. I would be very skeptical, barring, again, either a surrender or some some change in the course of the conflict, that you would see the, the totality of that civilian population be offered safe passage. I would love to be wrong. You know, I'd love for this to be to be broadcast. And the next day we get to see all those people go safely to somewhere else. But just everything about the way this conflict has played out so far suggests to me that this is going to be a really painful process to observe. 
Yeah, today's May 3rd, and the time is just ticking, you know, for these poor people who are stuck there. And that brings me to my next question. So both the Ukrainian soldiers and the citizens who are stuck there seem to be feeling, you know, the full force of Russia's siege tactics, you know, with food and water running low. And people who are stuck in other places feel the same thing. How do food and water factor into humanitarian crises like this? Well, we talked previously about humanitarian corridors. You know, we talked about them as being an all-encompassing term that can both allow for the safe passage of civilians or goods and services, and they can be, you know, bi-directional, right? It can be getting people out, or it can also be getting goods and services in. So there's surely the opportunity for relief providers to be negotiating with the Russian forces to create a time when they could bring food and water in, right? And just to keep people alive until such time as a resolution is found. We do know that the ICRC is present. I mean, you can see them in the videos of the initial evacuation. So they clearly have established some sort of trusted relationship with the parties here that allows at least them to be there in their in their cars. And so presumably they're having those kinds of conversations as well as allow us to bring in just enough food for the civilians, you know, just to keep people alive, especially given the you know horrendous conditions that they find themselves in. So that's really the only way that the UN and the Red Cross have to keep up the flow of supplies, right? Yeah, I mean, it has it has to be negotiated. I mean, a, an essential component of this is, you know, there there have been cases throughout history of unilaterally declared humanitarian corridor, right? Like Russia tomorrow could withdraw its forces or declares, uh, you know, and and prove it. But ultimately, these are negotiated activities, and they rely on a certain amount of trust. And in this conflict, we know that that trust is this is this is more than a trust but verify situation because it's been broken so many times. You know, it's interesting to me to see the UN involved in these negotiations as well because they also have a different role to play. And one of the things that concerns me about the UN, you know, using its good offices to negotiate something so specific is, I mean, the Secretary General of the United Nations should not be negotiating the safe passage for a thousand people. You know, first and foremost, this is not a concession by the Russians, right? They're, they're in violation of their obligations every day that those civilians are entrapped in that factory. They're committing violations of the laws of war and the human rights violations that are accompanied by it. But the fact is the secretary general should be negotiating peace. He should be negotiating an end to the conflict and should be leaving these kinds of nitty gritty issues to those closest to the ground. And it only concerns me because, you know, by getting those senior level offices so engaged in day to day realities, it in some ways empowers the Russian authorities to gum up the works of international diplomacy, gum up the works of conflict resolution by having all the focus be on, you know, the admittedly horrendous situation of this, this small group of people. So I'm happy that these negotiations are happening. The fate of those of those people is deeply gut wrenching. But I would, you know, encourage at least the UN, the Security Council, to focus on the bigger picture issue here, which is we need an end to the conflict. Well, so it begs the question: if we and the UN can't trust the Russians on, you know, matters of human decency regarding civilian populations, how could you possibly trust them on negotiating things like ceasefires? Well, any negotiation, I think, becomes a matter of, you know, it's a balance between interests and on-the-ground realities, right? 
that negotiation, I mean, I've been reading a little bit about the Cuban Missile Crisis negotiations and the Suez Crisis negotiations. You know, people are looking at historical examples where, you know, the proximity to the affected state and the impact and the balance of interests, right? And, you know, we're not here to talk about the strategic interests of, of Russia or its leadership, but, you know, the negotiations will succeed when that calculus changes. And so, you know, for now, I do think elevating the reputational and potentially legal political implications of a failure to resolve the most acute humanitarian costs of the conflict is useful as part of that future negotiation where, on balance, the decision is made that it's to the benefit of the Russians to lay down their arms even temporarily. So while all eyes are on Mariupol and there's an ongoing evacuations of civilians from there, meanwhile, the, the Russian offensive is escalating in eastern Ukraine. What measures do you know of that are in place to ensure civilian safety in other regions? Well, you know, when we, when we look at the map of the humanitarian or civilian implications of the conflict, I've thought about it in, in three parts. Areas in Ukraine that are part of active conflict. And that map has changed substantially in the past few weeks, but is now really focused on, on Donbass and the, that eastern and southern part. The rest of Ukraine, which has been heavily impacted from previous rounds of fighting, but is now essentially in Ukrainian controlled hands and relatively quiet. And then the situation for refugees or other civilians who have left Ukraine. And so I think a lot of focus needs to be now on the acute need in those areas where there's still active fighting or where people are sort of in the process of fleeing and have immediate needs like shelter and just accessing basic food and, and water. Um, but I also think that we would it would be a shame, you know, a lot of a lot of money has been spent, a lot of relationships have been built with Ukrainian civil society organizations and organizations in Poland and Moldova and those neighboring countries that have hosted a lot of refugees. And I think those those situations are not going to resolve themselves overnight. And so I do think kind of doubling down and investing the time and resources now to continue to support those communities, either of Ukrainians coming home or of people who are just trying to rebuild their lives, that's going to be essential because you know, it's not going to end soon in, in southern eastern Ukraine. We're going to continue to see displacement inside of Ukraine as the front lines shift and making sure that the Ukrainian organizations, be they NGOs or community groups or others, are funded and resourced to respond to those needs immediately. You know, it's the critical first step to ensuring you know, a future for Ukraine that, you know, this is step one on rebuilding the country is making sure that, you know, people are are kept alive and are treated with dignity and that the organizations are empowered that can, you know, someday turn from humanitarian organizations to, you know, community support organizations to democracy and, you know, civic organizations. So there's such a complex array of needs and, you know, forms of assistance this has got to be extremely frustrating for people who work in the humanitarian field. Can you describe how, you know, the thinking is about this? I mean, it's, it's going to be a long haul here. There's no question. What do you do in a situation like this? Well, in, in some sense, I think there's, I wouldn't say two schools of thought, but there's certainly a, you know, a hierarchy of needs approach 
which says like we, we'll spend our money on you know first and foremost food, shelter, water, and medicine, and then you start to get into things like which are no longer considered secondary but slightly more complicated, like psychosocial support. You know, providing the the therapy and and trauma services to people who have experienced or have endured great suffering. So one approach is we do the most, you know, we do the food and water first, and then as we can, we do the other. And the second approach is we have to do this all holistically, and we have to respond as holistically as possible. I mean, the U.S. government generally does both, right? We fund organizations like the ICRC, but also the UN, UN Refugee Agency, some of the big NGOs, and even some direct funding to the local NGOs to do work across the spectrum of activities. But it is it is frustrating, and I think part of the reason that it's so frustrating is, one, this seems so unnecessary. I mean, the level of suffering that we're seeing, it just seems so egregious. And why did it have to be this way? It's frustrating because it sucks energy, oxygen, and resources from conflicts around the world that equally didn't have to be this way, but you know they were already ongoing. I mean, the pivot from, of attention from Afghanistan to Ukraine that we saw, you know, at the end of February. But you think about the Horn of Africa, you think about Yemen, you think about places in great need. And it's frustrating because you can do all this work. And even if you do it the best way possible, and even if you do it holistically, people are still suffering. Um, you, can, you can give food and you can give water, you can give shelter, and you can give the psychological support. And people who have experienced this kind of conflict, they're going to suffer for the rest of their lives from it. Jake, thanks for this sobering assessment and really appreciate you coming back on the program. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 